and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Gender means the gender of a person or the gender which a person expresses as the person's preferred gender or which the person identifies and includes transgender and a gender other than those of male and female. For any listeners struggling to get their head around all of that on first reading, that rather curious and rather circular definition has been lifted directly from Ireland's proposed new criminal justice incitement to violence or hatred or hate offences bill. It is expected to become law in September this year. But thankfully, Free Speech Ireland has been campaigning vigorously against the bill, as well as its vague and confusing definitions such as that of gender with which we started the episode. Free Speech Ireland is concerned that the bill will infringe civil and human rights while masquerading as a progressive measure to protect vulnerable groups. Free Speech Ireland was set up in 2018, the same year of Ireland's blasphemy referendum, an important free speech win which led to the removal of blasphemy as an offence within the Irish Constitution. So today we're delighted to welcome Sarah Hardiman, spokesperson for Free Speech Ireland, as our guest on That's Debatable. Sarah, Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Tom. Well, Sarah, you spoke to us about this piece of legislation a month or so ago, and I was just refreshing my memory about it this morning. And it's genuinely quite hard to know where to begin because there's so many completely terrible aspects to this bill. Um, each each line you, you read seems to be worse than the one before. Um, where would you begin with this piece of legislation? I mean, what's the, what's the top concern that, that you have about this bill? The top concern for us as Free Speech Ireland is the infringement on speech specifically. This bill is trying to do two things. It's trying to cover incitement to violence, which is obviously, you know, an aspect of speech restriction. Uh, You can't shout fire in a cinema. You can't call for the erasure of an ethnic group. I think we all understand that those are the, the reasonable exceptions to this idea of free speech. This bill is trying to cover that area to some extent, but that's not what it principally uh, tries to cover. It is trying to do something much more difficult, which is to cover the concept of hate and try to police the idea of hate, which is one of many things that is not defined in this bill. As you mentioned appropriately, there are many problems with this bill. That's one of the main ones. Um, But Yes, the the biggest concern is the fact that ultimately it is a violation. It it is seeking to violate uh, free speech as it currently exists in Ireland, and that will have ramifications not just for the people of Ireland, but for pretty much everyone using social media, mainly because of the presence of tech companies such as Facebook, Google, um, Instagram, you name it, TikTok. They're all based in Ireland, and therefore they are compliant with Irish laws. So if it becomes a crime in Ireland to say certain things, uh, those companies are going to be regulated from the angle of speech by those Irish laws as well. So this is not just an issue affecting the Irish public. This will affect potentially any social media user, regardless of where they are in the world. So it's got that very wide ranging effect by virtue of where Ireland sits in the global economy, um, Sarah. Um, But... You know, one of the things that surprised me when you say about this sort of dual uh, thing that the bill's trying to do, it's trying to address you know, incitement to violence but also hate speech, is you said it doesn't even define hate speech and it doesn't, it doesn't get into any of the detail at all. Um, and is it, in terms of where it is in the political process, my understanding it's gone quite a long way through the political process without getting any of those definitions out there clear um, and, and sort of washed through to any more clarity. So h- how's that happen, Sarah? And is it going, are those things going to be addressed before it becomes law? It's looking like they may be addressed to some extent. Uh, you mentioned that the plan is to hopefully have this pass in September. So our group, Free Speech Ireland, has led a campaign where we tried to bring awareness to the public about mm. this bill. The initial plan was to have it passed by Easter through both Houses of the Irish Parliament, known as the Oireachtas. Uh, the lower house passed it through with an overwhelming majority of votes, and that's when it got the attention of uh, international media. 
and it's suddenly the Irish media finally perked up and, and realized this was an issue, started to cover it. And so that allowed us to lead a campaign where we simply asked members of the public to contact their local representatives. And when it got from the lower house to the upper house, uh, the debate was quite interesting to watch in the upper house known as the Senate, because many of the senators said they had never received more correspondence in their careers on a particular issue. So we are a lot more optimistic about how much can be done to improve the many problems with this bill. And it has thankfully, you know, gone into the summer recess uh, with 80 proposed amendments. So we see that as a huge victory. However, uh, we're going to have to see how many of those pass and what state the bill will be in after that fact. So we are optimistic that it might not be as bad as it currently is. Like we mentioned, the lack of definition of uh, hatred. There's also the lack of definition of incitement. In fact, part of what this bill is doing is repealing the law on the books in relation to incitement. So that's the Prohibition of Incitement to Hatred Act 1989. That bill doesn't, inc- it doesn't define incitement either. It refers to the concept of stirring up hate and the, the knock-on effect of that in particular in relation to violence. But, you know, you could argue that there, there's already that problem with the laws and the books. And part of the government's defence of this legislation is that we've only had, I think, somewhere between 30 and 50 prosecutions since 1989 under the current incitement to hatred law. Um, but maybe that's a sign that there aren't really, there isn't that much of an issue. There, uh, there aren't that many acts of hatred or violence from sourced from hate carried out in the state, which is fantastic um, if that is the case. But if they, they claim that somehow this bill is not fit for purpose, you know, what, why are you not addressing the main issues with that bill, which is you don't have a definition of many of the problem, the things that the, the bill is, you know, putting in the name of the bill, let alone mm. other aspects of it. So we see that problems that may already exist in the 1989 Act are not getting resolved in this one. And we're hoping, certainly off the back of the debates that have happened in the Senate, we are seeing that the senators are aware of these problems, specifically around those definitions. So potentially we might see these definitions come through and they would at least uh, make the uh, the scope of the bill a little bit less wide ranging, um, which you know is, is something, again, we would see as probably a win. But then, of course, what they define it as could be a concern as well. Um, but better to have a definition than none. Um, so, yeah, that's the current that's the current state of of it in in uh, our parliament. It's going to be interesting to see what happens after the summer recess. Um, I believe they're going through various stages of the, of the committees uh, in the Senate for review of this. That will be certainly interesting to watch. But we are one of many interest groups now that have come to the fore to engage senators. Um, so it's great to see more more parties like us, you know, we're just a small advocacy group um, entering this sort of domain and saying, look, you know, we, we are uh, going to push this as much as we can and get public support for this. So that's been helpful um, that, that we have a lot of support uh, against this. But any, any poll that happens, you could look at Irish social media and you would get a sense that the Irish public are very concerned with this. Uh, legislation, as you mentioned, we repeal the ba- blasphemy laws with over 60% of the votes. I think it was closer to 65%. There was also a public consultation on this specific bill. And I think over 73% of the respondents said that they don't want this legislation. So the Irish public are very clear um, that this isn't what they want. This is coming from Europe anyway. You know, this isn't something any political party or candidate has run in a mandate for. So they can't claim that they have the democratic will of the people, if anything, they can claim only the opposite. Um, so they're going to have to answer to either Europe or or, or the Irish public on this issue. And uh, I don't think either is going to be happy because Europe wants one thing and the Irish public clearly want another. So it's not looking good for the government. Uh, they're certainly not content with the optics on this one either. I, so. I, I think the most astonishing definition I've read in all of these circular definitions that, that are in this piece of legislation was the, the Justice Minister who's been shepherding this through Parliament said, we all have an understanding of what hatred means, as if that sort of benevolent sounding fluff um, could interact meaningfully with 
legislative language and have any kind of force or explanatory power. It's just completely subjective, isn't it? It's astonishing. It is. And and that's one of her excuses is that um, she's, ref- you know, she's, she's had advice from the current and the previous attorney general and they have advised her to not put in a definition of things like hatred um, because it's, well, obviously it gives them a lot more power as the government or any prosecutor will have a lot more power. Um, so that is, uh, you know, in, in their interest, if they want to have as much uh, power with this as they can get their hands on. Luckily, uh, a senator by the name of Michael McDowell was a former deputy Irish prime minister, uh, former attorney general, and also a former minister for justice. So he's one of the senators more than qualified uh, to speak on, on this matter. And thankfully, he is very vocal in his opposition to the many issues um, around this bill. And he talks widely about the issue of cancel culture, um, that we can't ignore the parallel between that and what the, this legislation would allow. Um, so we're quite lucky that uh, where we're getting the support, where the expertise is coming from, uh, particularly within the Senate as, as a House um, but it, it is it is certainly the biggest issue. I mean, just to list them off, uh, it, it, I'm going to list off the, the protected characteristics that are actually in this bill that are given uh, precedent over other types of speech. So, uh, as you mentioned, gender is, is one of them. Race is another color, nationality, religion, uh, descent, gender, sex characteristics, which is one particular uh, definition here that I, I sort of say... Um, uh, what does that mean? Sorry, it's, it's, it's very poorly defined, if, if not completely undefined, really. Uh, sexual orientation and, or disability. So the issue I find with uh, those, again, is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's the codifi- codification of identity politics. Why should one group be protected over another? It's, uh, it's one of those aspects of this bill because it comes from a framework decision from 2008, and that's referenced in, in this bill. And that that framework uh, decision is from, again, Europe. Um, So we're probably not going to see any of that uh, attacked. But again, uh, the Senator Michael McDowell also referenced in a letter to the uh, Interim Minister for Justice earlier this year. He asked him to clarify uh, the, the issues around gender again, because we have a Gender Recognition Act from 2015, and it refers openly to men and women. But this bill also references i think it's either trans or non-binary but again another set of terms that are not actually uh part of those uh you know part of the gender recognition act part of um what is recognized in irish law formally and that's i'll just tell you here it says gender means the i'm I'm reading what 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 tom already read but it says that uh, people who identify as transgender or gender other than male or female I don't know what standing that's going to have in Irish law. So, so many of these things, you know, it's, it's hard to see them stand up to scrutiny if there was a challenge as to the legality of this bill, let alone the constitutionality of it. Um, so it's seeking to do things that other laws haven't that are not related to incitement or hatred at all. So, and yeah, these it's, it's words a mess. really matter, don't they, Sarah? You know, the, the Equality Act in uh, 2010 has, has stood up relatively well, Um but there's one word missing with regard to sex, which is biological sex. And there's big discussion at the moment in the UK Parliament about getting that uh, word biological before sex as a protected characteristic. And, and again, that's one word from a piece of legislation that's 13 years ago. When we talk about those protected characteristics that you just listed, when we talk about gender and a circular definition around it, uh, where where does that take us? Number one, a couple of things. I suppose it means that no one's doing the hard thinking. No one in Parliament, they're kicking that can down the road to those who have to then actually put this law into practice. And if we look at um, Scotland, where they've, got a, they've had a similar law, the police, it's gone all the way through to, to being law in Scotland. Um, what, they, what they have there is the Hate Crime and Public Order Act. Um, but the police are left not knowing how to implement it. They don't have enough clarity as to what exactly stirring up hatred is to, to, to police the streets. And so you lazy wording at the, the, at the drafting of a bill stage or unclear wording leads to very practical implications. And yet the politicians can then turn around and say, well, we did this. 
Uh, but in practice, that that doesn't doesn't mean anything. So we've been here, done that in some ways, uh, in other parts, well, in in Scotland. So I, I guess the concern is um, what that will mean in Ireland. That's that's a great point, and it's you know it's the sort of thing when this does become law, it's certainly going to pass in some shape or form. Uh, how are Ungarda Shikona, the Irish Police Force? How are they going to to police mm. it? And, uh, you know, in, in one sense, it's it's good that Scotland is struggling with that because they should. It's terrible. It's terribly unclear. Um, so we have these issues that that certainly need to be addressed around this. Um, w- once policy guide documents as to how arrests, etc. should happen um, under this, you know, that, that will become a, a different matter um, that could start to give these, this sort of legislation real teeth. And that is something that we'll, you know, have very little say over as a public because it's going to have gone through, you know, all the stages of parliament and review. And uh, at that point, it will just become normalised. And I'll just go to the point of the education system here. We have a, uh, on our equivalent of the A-levels, we have a subject, I think it's politics and sociology. It wasn't there in my day, so I may have the wrong name for it. But I was reading its recent examination paper. And it talked, a question in it was asking, tell us why Ireland needs free speech legislation. So we're seeing this in, you know, civics classes and schools, uh, that this is being taught to the students. I, I haven't read the curriculum. I haven't seen any of the, the, uh, the, the books that are part of this course. But I, I certainly hope to, because to me, it's quite concerning to see what are you teaching uh, students uh, about the idea of, of freedom and liberty and expression, um, that you would say that this is something that's just a foregone conclusion, as if it's um, a, a such a fundamental thing in d- democracy to uh, so just to understand, sir, what, what you're saying in that education is that free speech is is treated in a hostile that the, the questioning of it is host, is a hostile rather than pro free speech. It, it's saying, you know, why why would you bother teaching free speech? Is that is that the point? Yeah, they're they're specifically saying why this legislation legislation around hatred uh, in speech should be restricted. Now, I mean, if you criticise that in that in 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 that in that exam paper, uh, it looks like you're going to get marked down. So yes, right. that's that's the concern that that they're they're putting that now in our education system, and 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 it goes to the fact that look at the age group of people who are sitting these exams now. They're uh, Gen Gen Z. Uh, they're people who've spent most of their lives online. And if we look at this as a sort of a generational issue, they're going to experience speech in a completely different way to their parents. They will have done much of it online, for example. So the concept of free freedom of expression is possibly going to uh, change in people's minds without the sufficient reference to history and times in the past when it is restricted and what the consequences of that are. I would be personally concerned that that isn't going hand in hand with this sort of civics program that we're looking at so uh, I, I would be concerned by that because if you can tell a generation of people that this this is necessary you're also telling them what happens historically when when these laws have come in in the past I w- again I'm going to have to examine that that course further but I do think you're going to see maybe 20 years down the line if this law is on the books the public might feel very differently about it because they will have experienced uh, interaction and life in a very different way to, to those of us uh, who are here now. So um, it's, it's, it's certainly going to be something that, uh, you know, the, the implementation of it and the public appetite for it, it'll be interesting to see if that changes. Hopefully not. I, I try to remain optimistic. When you came to speak to the Free Speech Union staff um, a little while ago about this bill, we talked at quite quite some length about the the variety of, of perverse prosecutions that could take place under the legislation. Obviously, you've got was it eighty amendments, so you, so there's there's hope still that the the bill will be substantially reformed. But in the legislation as proposed, um, it, so it's talking about inciting violence, hatred against a person, or a denial or gross trivialization of genocide, um, and possessing material likely to incite violence, which I'd like to come back to because I think that's a big point on its own. But it occurred to me that an Englishman could arrive in Ireland 
and say that commemoration of the Irish Revolution trivialised, say, the targeting of stately homes, and therefore there, there could be a prosecution under this piece of legislation. Now, we do have listeners in the House of Lords who I think would strongly endorse such a prosecution, but presumably the Irish public would have a very different view about that, and it's palpably ludicrous that such a prosecution could take place, um, that commemoration of... of Irish history and the Irish Revolution um, could fall foul of this piece of legislation. And we talked about a variety of other examples uh, when we spoke before, but there were were a whole raft of examples, weren't there, where somebody could fall foul of this legislation for saying completely innocuous things or uh, not talking about history in a way that was deemed to be appropriate or offensive to somebody anywhere. Sure. Um, Again, I think one of the examples I I brought up there is is the the position of the Irish famine. That that is you know debated just on on every sphere really um in irish in irish life many people will have varying opinions on it historians certainly will and there are exceptions in this legislation for things like um, artistic expression and academia and all of these other matters but i can't help but wonder at what point is it someone's public opinion on a genocide and what point is it a an academic one and who gets to have an academic opinion on something? Um, are they going to leave that to, you know, someone having... Um, it, well, the definition is the reasonable and genuine contribution. What about someone who just makes a throwaway m- remark in a casual, par- private conversation? Um, that could be, you know, I- intended or not offensive to the person that they're having this conversation with. Um, so... You know, would you have to d- defend the fact that, oh, I was having a genuine academic discussion? I mean, the, the ordinary person in society doesn't, uh, you know, always think in those terms on, on let's say, the political opinions, historical opinions, whatever. Um, so there is, yeah, there is that, that, that concern. And then there's the concern of the chilling effect if people do become aware that the, the, this legislation means that you can't criticise the Armenian genocide or you can, or whatever you can or can't criticise. Um, that you know, and we, we understand that reason for for laws like this refer to much more prolific examples, um, and then again, those those examples are at the decision of let's say countries like Germany, understandably, have you know taken to to, to have those laws in place. Maybe they're popular to have the restrictions that they have on on their historical discussions, but should that apply to every country the his, where the histories are simply vastly different? Um, or, or a law intended to catch things in one place will catch a whole plethora of other discussions, academic or otherwise, in another country, in another completely different context. So again, that's where I think the European angle on this doesn't really fit for maybe most European nations because there are genuine and different discussions around our history that in many cases like that issue are arguably unresolved academically. So um, yeah, that that is a concern um, that that something that whether or not you agree with Germany's laws are the laws in Germany for for people there. Just to follow up on one point that, that you raised there, the idea that the legislation, and we've seen similar things proposed in the UK where you have a certain class of people who are allowed to talk about these things, so academics or journalists or artists are given a sort of special protection. But, but then you end up in a situation where you have free speech if you're in the middle or upper middle classes and you're in a profession. But exactly as you say, if you're, if you're just talking in the pub about Irish history um, or whatever subject that might be deemed to fall foul of this, you don't have the same protection that an academic does. And academics have frivolous conversations about history, about all sorts of subjects. So they would be protected. But if you're having a conversation in the pub that isn't deemed to be sufficiently serious or erudite, you fall foul of this. Um, it's deeply troubling development, to put it very mildly. Um, and yes. as I say, we've seen similar things in the UK. Um, very troubling. Certainly. And, and I will quote Senator Ronan Mullen, another senator who's been very vocal on this issue. He accepts that, you know, the, the fact that we have parliamentary privilege for our parliamentarians, they can say and do anything, well, say, certainly say anything they want to um, and have, have those protections from, uh, from prosecution. That he acknowledged most people maybe don't speak as refined as they do or don't have, you know, the, the same depth of maybe... Uh, you know, knowledge on certain issues because they might not have to, and they can just have an opinion. And it, it you know, it's it's just the reality of it. And the wrong person overhears the, you know, uh, a certain statement, 
in and out of an appropriate context and it might be rude and it may be offensive and it may 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 even hurt someone but uh you know it, ultimately we're looking at this sort of uh, infantilization of of the human experience in public society i mean people have you know if you stand at uh, a junction of any street in dublin and you'll hear some cyclist shouting at some some uh, driver and it would be certainly unsavory remarks and some of them will fall into uh the list of characteristics that i've I, i've i've listed under this bill if you catch someone's car registration and you're a cyclist and you've been deeply offended by what someone said to you at a junction whether you were in the within the confines of the rules of the road or not you could make that report i mean we don't know how you know far this could go so we're going to see everyday unpleasant situations that could end up with criminal charges it's a mad idea that word infantilization is a word i keep coming back to when i think about hate crime uh in in scotland in, in ireland northern ireland in the republic of ireland um and going all the way back to before hate crime really was was being sort of swiftly put onto statute books political correctness in many ways was the precursor to it and again it was this infantilization of saying people need protection they're not resilient enough people need to be taught i mean I don't know if you've been to London recently, yeah, you, Sarah, or maybe, you, well, you were with us, weren't you? You were with us I in person. <laughs> um, on the tube now, uh, the, the signs that have been put up saying staring, you know, intrusive staring of any of a particular cassette. I think it's sexual kind, but it's not, you know, is not allowed. And then there's another one that says touching. If you touch someone, and I'm thinking... If you've been brought up well, if you're an adult in a civilised society, I don't need to go onto the tube and see a sit opposite a sign that tells me not to stare in an intrusive way or not to touch someone. That's the sort of thing my primary school teacher or my secondary school teacher. So that word infantilization is something I come back to again and again and again, and it seems to be baked into all of this. And mixed in with that, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, is this sort of departure between the individuals who are writing to um, their political representatives and, and, and you know, the people down the pub who are just saying, this doesn't make sense, and the civil organisations, the civil groups, who seem almost to, to a man saying, we are for this, we're for this hate speech uh, um, uh, legislation, and we want more of it, and they're all coordinating and working with the lobbyists and such like to make this happen. I don't know, don't know what you feel about that sort of demarcation between the, the, the societies, the organisations, the groups, and actual normal individual citizens whose voices really should be the most important in all of this. Sure. Uh, well, apart from the EU uh, angle on this, this bill, yeah. the fact that this has been handed down from us, the Irish NGO sector has certainly played a large uh, role in, in lobbying for the aspects of this bill, in particular the section uh, in relation to the protective characteristics, and that's where the identity, you know, the identity politics issue is coming in, the infantilization that comes with that, the special treatment of of certain individuals ahead of others, which you know goes against any concept of equality, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, it's interesting you mention the that sign in the tube. I've seen it and I just can't help but think, well, any time I've been on a packed tube, I don't know how you aren't touching up against someone. <laughs> so, you know, and like good, good luck policing that. Good luck anyone, you know, on the wrong day in the wrong state of mind. They were just too close to me. It's like, well, you know, everyone was lucky to have a centimetre between each other um, on that given day. I mean, we're just gone so past any concept of reasonableness um and you would like to think reasonableness will still be a factor in any prosecutions that's going to depend on ultimately the final final uh, form of of any legislation in this respect and then also the implementation of this in a, in a courtroom it's all going to factor in um to that i still don't like the idea that there is um a reversal of these unestablished rules in society. Technically, hitting up against someone is a uh, battery or assault. You know, I, I, I'm forgetting the exact technical distinction, but that, I mean, I remember learning that in in law class in in a, in a criminal law module. And what what I'm saying is that we don't, you know, prosecute people for bumping up against someone on on a busy street. That's never how it's been applied. 
Um, but if we're giving people free reign to take some instance like that and provide a totally new context with this legislation, you, you could see these things happen. I mean, we've seen the crazy cases of Count Dankula and a meme online. What about real life? What about when people, again, I, I, make the, this, I, I emphasize that this is an important factor. We're dealing with a generation of people, and it's not to pick on them, but they have spent so much of their reality online. They game online. They're in Discord servers online as they game. A lot of their socialization is in this world. And that will impact their behavior and their interpretation of behavior back in the real world. How far could we take this? Like we are seeing a revolution of a kind of human interaction. And that th these sorts of laws, again, it's another factor in why they're a problem. Um, so I think it is, it is a divergence, not just of opinion uh, between, let's, let's say, the lobby sector and, like you say, ordinary citizens just going for a pub who've really got no more interest in this space, we'll say, where, where laws change and, and all of that. They just want to get on with their lives and expect a certain level of liberty. And that, that's somewhat unquestioned. Um, that, that, that is an issue. Again, it's like the bathroom issue on, on the issue of whether or not biological men or, or biological women, uh, you know, should be in certain spaces. A lot of these things come back to the unwritten rules that we've never really had to police for. Packed tubes, bathrooms, all these different things that we have never had too formal an understanding of, but in reality understood that they were lines you didn't cross socially. So to have not even those things codified, but the opposite of those things potentially being codified, uh, that these things would now not just be um, unwritten rules, but these unwritten rules overwritten to provide for the protection of these infantilized, uh, you know, concepts. Um, we're going to see a massive change in, in how we conduct things. This goes far beyond speech. It goes, goes right to the heart of everyday human behavior. That, funnily enough, may not have any speech or, or expression at all. It might be a bathroom, it might be a packed juke, you know. Could we talk, Sarah, about this prohibition on um, possessing material likely to incite violence or hatred against persons on account of their protected characteristics? Um, th that seems to me perhaps the second most troubling aspect of the legislation, and it's a very close second. Um, is, that, is that still... Uh, well, I suppose what I'm asking, is there any hope of that being removed from the legislation, or do you think that, that probably is going to survive? Do you have any sense of that? It's certainly been discussed uh, in the Senate debates that we've seen, which is is wonderful. Um, it's the the primary concern there relates to Section Ten and Section Fifteen of the bill, and I do encourage people to read this to to really see how um, how overreaching it is. There is a reversal of the presumption of innocence, and that will allow for uh, police powers in Ireland to really be extended beyond what they are now, specifically in relation to this issue. I'm going to quote Senator Sharon Keown, who's been one of the more vocal senators on this issue, and she said that it's going to treat people like drug dealers. You know, it's one of those things where uh, possession without a dentist apply uh, is enough to, to convict you to prove otherwise um, if you want to defend yourself. Um, so that like in, in you know intent to supply memes like that that's almost where we're getting to but you don't even have to be at that stage you you, you could have a draft email uh with a meme that you've made for your own you know sense of humor and think it's something hilarious and maybe it's more on the sort of dark humor side and an off-color thing or whatever um and yes that is something that if the police have reason to uh investigate you based on you know someone reporting you for hateful speech um if they get a warrant to search your home and search all of your electronic possessions um and they come across this that could be gathered in evidence um for for your um for your prosecution so we're seeing a massive overreach in that respect there's also a change in how warrants can be obtained uh, or what, what a warrant will permit uh, police to do rather. And that will be that they will have the right to come into your home, seize your electronic devices uh, in a dawn raid style and not just yours, but the electronic devices of anyone you live with. So you, if you're a, someone living in a 
house share situation with housemates or your housemate and someone is is subjected to this, you you would not only be required to hand over all of your electronic devices, but also the passwords. So any concept of privacy with regard to violating this law is really not there. And again, it could be merely for possession of electronic materials like memes that you have never shared with anyone. So it's it's far too overreaching for for what has happened. And, and I know people think memes, it's that's a ridiculous example. It's a joke. This is clearly about catching people uh, like Elliot Rogers who've written manifestos and then gone on to do heinous acts. Of course, it would have catch people like that. But when you again see the Snapdog, the girl who made the Snapdog lyrics video in honour of a friend of hers who died, I think that was in Manchester, she she was prosecuted. Count Ankula famously for his dog doing uh, a Nazi salute. Like, we've seen these types of laws prosecute for silly things. And it's reasonable to say, yeah, the wrong name could, could end up in a book of, of, of evidence if you were to be tried for any reason. So it's, it's, it, is a, it is that scary. It's just horrifying. Are there any carve-outs protecting certain types of material? Because I, I imagine you've made the point I'm about to make, which is I happen to have a copy of the Quran and a copy of the Old Testament, a copy of the Hadiths on the bookshelf right next to me, um, and that a, a policeman with a sufficiently hostile, sceptical mind would find plenty of incitement in those three texts to be getting on with to prosecute me under this piece of legislation were I to be an island. Um, is there any kind of protection for religious texts? So in the whole 37 section bill, there are four lines in relation to one section, and that is section 11, and it's titled Protection of the Freedom of Expression. And it says that any material or behaviour not taken to incite violence um, will, you know, it, it's fine in the instance that it involves discussion or criticism of the matters relating to a protected characteristic. And that's it. That's all they're giving you. Yes, you can, you can have a criticism. Where does a criticism become hatred? Oh, we're relying on the fact that everyone knows what hatred is. Okay, that's not going to cause any confusion, any ambiguity whatsoever. Um, so, yeah, that, like you, could, you, could, you now have to justify why you've got a copy of the Quran in your home. If, like, like as, you, as you gave an example, maybe you've, you know, you're interested in studying world religions. Why is that anybody's business? That's part of the danger. On the flip side of the of the scenario I've just outlined, I've, I've just well, almost finished a PhD interviewing ex-Muslims. So I've got about 200,000 words of, of written evidence on my computer in front of me right now um, of ex-Muslims who are extremely hostile to the religion they have left because of their treatment by their parents or their community or whatever. Um, none of them are going to be violent. None of them are trying to incite violence, but they're, they're not hesitant in expressing their hostility to the religion they've left behind. So presumably that, you know, there, there's even fewer, there's even less protection um, for that type of material than there would be for the religious text. So all that, that group of people to pick just one would be in a lot of trouble. That's an excellent point. And, you know, we have to accept that whatever people say they hate, flavour of a food, an ideology, artwork, whatever, they don't necessarily have to justify it. You know, they, we're, we're, we're going into realms of human expression. The idea that any person has gone their whole life without hating something is laughable. It's a human emotion. It's like things like anger. Sometimes it's very justified if you were a victim of a crime pretty sure you're going to hate the person who perpetrated that. At least at some point you're going to hate them. So we can say it's an emotion that's relatable, that we all quote-unquote understand, but that's the difference, is that people can move on from things like hatred. And it's certainly not the place of any legislature to start to instruct on an issue like the emotional state of a person uh, for whatever reason because people will move on like you mentioned people there might have some resentment towards family members etc we're veering into the private we're veering into the personal uh, experiences of people that may change in the future that they may or may not um, want publicly to to have uh, things that they have had to reconcile in their life um, 
they won't have to, um, you know, d- discuss that too too publicly or don't don't want to. Mm. But if someone says, "Well, my ex-Muslim son has said that he hates me and he hates everything he did to me," uh, and and I'm just going to tell you that I think he's capable of attacking, you know, a mosque, for example. Um, with no evidence of that, other than maybe you just want to, you're, again, you're dealing with deeply personal things, um, shy of evidence, that would be the sort of issue that you could say, okay, if there's evidence, that's exactly what we have laws on for right now, incitement of violence. No one should ever live in fear of violence. But the issue is, are you dealing with a domestic situation where nasty words have been said and there's, there is resentment, there is bitter interpersonal, interfamily issues? Um, so th- this is the thing we're playing in such a grey area of of human of human life. Um, the yeah. bar should be high when restricting people's uh, you know freedoms. That's just the reality of living in a Western liberal democracy. So yeah, I, I would think that that's that's terrifyingly terrifyingly dangerous. And many people in Ireland would have you know similar opinions about the Catholic Church, um, and. You know, I mean, at what point do you have, you know, uh, have those discussions or do you, you know, let people publicly criticise Owen's very powerful institution in Ireland? Let them do so freely. And, you know, that's that's the beauty of it. Pub- the public gets to hate en masse. They really do. Um, so that's uh, that's that's part of what we're protecting in a way is is your, your right to be resentful and disgusted and um annoyed and frustrated and to do so completely freely be as 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 uh as angry as you want in a way provided you're not restricting the true liberty of someone else the, their safety and uh their freedoms too and, and sarah we mentioned at the beginning dublin is a huge center for the social media companies and data warehouses a lot of I guess it must data warehouse a lot of the comments all the way through Europe that get put up onto various social media platforms. So what are your thoughts about, I mean, have any of these, of your Facebooks and such like, have any of them made um, representations in this process and how that will, how it will affect them? Or are they, I expect they're thinking, well, every, every country in Europe's doing this in some shape or form. So there's no avoiding it. I'm mean, uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. I haven't seen any formal statement from any company. We had Elon Musk retweet our tweets and criticise the law. Um, Elon Musk has made no secret of the fact that part of why he wanted to buy Twitter was to um, have more free speech on that platform. So understandably, it was brought to his attention, either by the algorithm or someone who said, you know, this is going to affect your operations. Um, potentially. So, yeah, it's um, it's hard to see. I, I have no doubt in, a, in any event these sorts of companies are going to comply with the law, but they may do so with, with uh, massive hesitation. A lot of their private, you know, their private companies, their, their policies uh, have been set by them as, as, as companies and they want a, a certain standard of conduct you know, they'll have restrictions on things like gore, for example. Um, I don't think anyone has an issue with private companies overall restricting certain materials for, you know, val- valid reasons um, mm. for public consumption. But if the kind of speech that's going on between two people having a disagreement, I refer to a lady in the UK who had a Twitter spat with a transgender woman um, on the issue of bathrooms, she lived in she lives in Northern Ireland, and the police knocked on her door because this person reported her to the police. These are two people, clearly who were on Twitter with their name and face and public profile and everything else, and they were able to track her down because that speech was hateful under the laws that you have in the UK right now. So that is, you know, where it could go in reality. And there might be very little the social media companies can do about it. So uh, it's not clear to us that they've taken any, undertaken any lobbying in respect of this legislation. Um, again, like, like you mentioned, 
it's Europe wide anyway. Um, we're probably one of the last to do it uh, in, so, in, in many respects uh, to, to do this sort of legislation. But it's, you know, it's, it's clear they'll, they'll cooperate with the state, I believe. Uh, but again, it depends on how the comes back to the Scotland issue. How is it going to be yeah. policed? all up yeah. for play but it it's the kind of thing i suspect will take a few years to iron out in any event and maybe these changes and these adaptations will come in slowly um and then people will start to adjust to those but it's going to have a chilling effect i think yeah. it's it's going to stop people from engaging in certain ways it may drive more people to be anonymous online instead of under their own name and that causes another set of problems in its own right, because you could put um, not just insightful material out there, but uh, completely libelous information and target someone completely anonymously. And there's very little they could do about it if it's you know not criminal in nature and it's maybe um, something that's reputationally damaging for them. And uh, you know they wouldn't have the normal recourse of, of, of suing someone in the courts and you know civil courts. So it's there could be terrible knock-on effects. We could actually destroy the very good civil system we have uh, around pre- protecting uh, lies, um, where pe- like in respect of people's names. So uh, yeah, it's it's uh, mm. it's certainly all very very grey, very unclear. One one last question I have, Sarah, because um, you you've set out so many issues um, so clearly. Over the last over the last forty five minutes or so, but looking ahead five years, looking ahead ten years, it's so easy to think, my goodness, we're going in this direction of more and more hate speech law, more and more chilling effect, less and less good education of the importance of free expression. Um, do you feel optimistic at all, uh, looking ahead to the future, uh, or are you? I mean. What can we hold on to that will keep us going through through this? What keeps you going, Sarah? <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, the public support for me is the is the biggest win in all of this. I'm really glad that people are concerned and have perked up and realised this is a serious issue. And it's possible that maybe in the next election, which we're due to have in in under eighteen months um at the latest that's that's the latest it will happen you may find people you know running on a mandate saying well i'm pro free speech or i'm going to propose amendments to this bill or maybe someone might try to repeal it entirely you know it's it's hard to know um but that would certainly be a popular um issue right now because any of the polls that are happening are extremely pro free speech so it it would be a positive um, for, for any candidate or any party that takes a strong issue, a strong position on this issue. Um, so who knows? Uh, we do protest voting really well in Ireland, particularly at general elections. And, um, you know, it's, it's probably a foregone conclusion that Sinn Féin will be the next uh, government party, even potentially as a single party government. Um, so it's it's all to play for. They certainly supported this bill. Um, in fact, from what I've seen on social media, when people did contact Sinn Féin uh, parliamentarians, they were nearly always met with a response that said, we support this bill and, and outlined very clearly why they did. So it's certainly not going to be a Sinn Féin uh, mandate. And it's with, with respect to the current three government parties, um, they've all voted it in, so that's the Greens, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, both of those last two parties, have been the uh, the government parties for the for the last hundred years. It's been one or the other. It's weird that they're in a coalition together now, but again, that goes more to another discussion on the state of Irish politics, which is, is almost as messy as this bill. Um, so it's going to be interesting. I think people will see this and other pieces of legislation as government overreach, infringement on liberty. And I think that won't sit too well with the public. Mm. So I remain optimistic due to the public outcry. But again, things like education and other aspects prove that we have a gap uh, to fill and, and to inform people of 
the importance of this issue. And that may need to be information that we're giving more so to, to school age people. Um, so I think it's, 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 a, it's a good issue in that it's, it really does try to protect everyone. It's a human rights issue more than it is anything else. And I think people naturally have good instincts around it. And we have enough examples in history to, to point to and tell people that this, isn't, this, isn't, this never ends well. Um, so I, I do remain optimistic, but I also accept that this bill is probably going to exist in some shape or form for, from now on when it passes. And after that, it's going to be somewhat difficult to um, amend, you know, the, the identity characteristics. Uh, if anything, there could be future amendments to add more characteristics or to make those protections stronger. Uh, but maybe an option is to start proposing legislation that is very pro-free speech and that if there were future prosecutions that maybe we have, you know, a balance between the two, a stronger balance between the two, that might be a strategy. Uh, so optimistic in the sense that there will be support for, for the future of, of this fight. Um, but again, until it's law, we're not going to really get a full sense of, of uh, how this all plays down, especially when we don't know how it's going to be policed. Well, Sarah, thank you very much. That's been a startling warning. I think, for all of us. Um, if you're an Irish listener to the podcast, you can go to Free Speech Ireland's website and join with campaigning efforts there and follow uh, Free Speech Ireland on Twitter. Is there anything else that listeners can do to help? That's about it, really. Um, yeah, if you can support us on social media, I think we're also on Instagram and TikTok, I believe. Um, so any, any support there, any ideas, emails. We've had uh, tons of offers for help as well from people. We're a grassroots movement. So um, anyone who would like to get involved, please feel free to email us and uh, you'll find all that contact information on our website. And I should say as well, it's an all-volunteer effort as well. So it's remarkable what you've been able mm. to accomplish. Thank you very much. Well, thank you again for your time. And uh, if you're here in the UK and you'd like to join the Free Speech Union, our membership price starts at £2.49 a month. Um, and we will see you next time. Thank you very much for listening.